0: Welcome to the History Slam podcast from ActiveHistory.ca. Here's your host, Sean Graham. Thank you, Adam. Welcome to the History Slam, everybody. I am Sean Graham coming at you today nearly live. We are in Ottawa, Ontario, talking about energy today. Uh, A lot of my friends actually in Ottawa like to talk about hydroelectricity. A couple of people at the University of Ottawa have done PhD projects looking at the history of some dams and, and some of the companies that do hydropower and in talking to them i got turned on to a wonderful new book looking at a very interesting case out in british columbia and we were very lucky to have the author of that book sarah cox who wrote breaching the peace the site sea dam and a valley stand against big hydro and she's joining us from victoria sarah how are you
1: I am very well, thank you.
0: Good. Thanks for taking the time to uh, talk with me today because this book, it's gotten a lot of really good press, a lot of good reviews, and I, I know it's only been officially out for a couple of weeks as we're recording this, but the initial reaction has been very positive.
1: Um, yes, it's actually um, been a little overwhelming. I uh, just found out that uh, the book made the BC bestseller list last week. Wow! Um, so that's pretty exciting, and we've had some great turnouts at book events so far, and One reason why I wrote the book was to try to bridge a bit of a gap between north and south in our province in terms of knowledge and understanding and, and people. And so it's um, it's very gratifying to see some conversations begin to happen.
0: Absolutely. And, and we'll say to everybody that you are, uh, as we talked about just before we started to record, you're not a professional historian. You are a journalist uh, and you have a master's degree in poli-sci, which we will forgive you for. Um, <laughs>
1: well, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I am definitely not a professional historian.
0: <laughs> but I think that adds something to this book, too, because historians obviously have a very specific way of, of looking at things. And in this case, where it's the people against the government and the hydro company, having a journalistic mind, I think, lends itself really well to this book. Because of that, whereas historians, I, I just think the approach of historians is a little different. But uh, but So let's talk about that approach and uh, specifically what the book is about. So this is about the uh, public opposition to a hydroelectric dam on the Peace River. And this is relatively recently, too. So this happens in uh, 2010, where the announcement is made. And you mentioned the north-south thing. So specifically, where did they want to put the dam?
1: Just to kind of look at the big picture. So this, this very controversial large hydro dam in B.C. is one of three large hydro dams under construction in Canada right now. The other two are in northern Manitoba and in Labrador, and they're a few years ahead of this particular dam, which is known as the Site C Dam uh, on BC's Peace River. And so if you think Vancouver and you think driving for 14 hours straight to the province's northeast, that's where you will find the Peace, the Peace River. It's a heritage river. It was dammed by two previous large hydro dams in the late 60s and the late 70s. And plans had popped up a few times for a third dam on the Peace River. Um, and those were, after being rejected over the decades, uh, for good reason, those plans popped up again in 2010. And uh, now we see a very long process with a lot of opposition from First Nations and farming families in the Peace River Valley who would lose their homes and traditional territory. But uh, the dam is now in the preliminary stages of construction.
0: So one of the things that I think often gets associated with more northern communities would be uh, an increased percentage of the population being indigenous uh, and First Nations. And I get the sense that this is a large part of the story as well, that this is not just uh, an issue of locals versus government and and hydro but there's also an indigenous colonial aspect to the story as well.
1: Absolutely and I should say at the outset that I am a non-indigenous reporter and writer who is learning about indigenous culture and indigenous values indigenous issues and spending time up in the piece has really opened my eyes to some of the issues facing indigenous communities in our country and one of them is the site C dam which is in the traditional territory of uh, bc's treaty eight nations and uh, again i think you one one chief chief roland wilson from west moberly first nations told me when i sat down with him for an interview for this book that You simply can't look at the Site C dam in an isolated context. You have to look at it in the context of the two previous dams on the Peace River, which destroyed vast tracts of Treaty 8 territory. The, The WAC Bennett Dam, which became operational in the late 60s, flooded an area 15 times the size of the city of Vancouver, and it destroyed First Nations villages, destroyed their traditional transportation routes. It destroyed communities, families, cut people off from the land. And now you have a situation where there's approximately 90 kilometers remaining in the Peace River Valley that are relatively intact. And most of that would be lost to this third dam.
0: So what is it? I I think most people who, when they hear about dams and hydroelectric power, they think, great, it's renewable, it's not using fossil fuels, this is all great. What are the problems then associated with a big dam on a river? Why is there opposition to it? Because I know it's not just here that there's been opposition to it, and maybe it's because I, I have a lot of friends who are <laughs> environmental historians who talk about it, that, that I'm aware of some of the problems, but even I sometimes don't fully comprehend the extent to which communities oppose dams when they are proposed?
1: Yes, so so we can look at the impact in a number of ways. There's the impact on agricultural land, because this dam would flood or destroy more than 12,000 hectares of some of Canada's best agricultural land. In terms of private property, it will impact 105 properties with Farming families, including families with children being forced from their homes, either uh, for the reservoir or for the relocation of a provincial highway for the dam. You can look at it in terms of the First Nations impact where you have Treaty 8 First Nations, the Assembly of First Nations the Union of B.C. Indian chiefs all saying that this particular dam violates treaty rights because there are First Nations court cases that have yet to be heard that could stop the dam. You can look at it in terms of its incredibly severe environmental impact. And 200 of Canada's leading scholars actually looked at this project and they compared it to other projects that have gone through the federal environmental assessment process and they found that site C would have more environmental impacts than any project ever examined in the history of Canada's environmental assessment act
0: wow <laughs> which is kind of incredible uh, to think about it uh, given the amount of things that have happened in this country but is it so is it a product then of dams create flooding because you need to back the water up is is that what it is or Is it? I know people have talked about salmon. I don't know if this, if you know, salmon is an issue in this particular case and, and other wildlife not being able to migrate in the same way. You mentioned the highway, which is a really interesting thing that I wouldn't have thought of just initially that you need a highway to get there, but obviously you do to service it and to get the people to the dam and the equipment, everything else. But in terms of the actual water, right? I, this is something that I've never fully understood the the science of or the physics of. That why do dams inherently cause flooding?
1: Well, there's a dam structure that's built, and then the water backs up so that it can be metered through the dam, and that's what causes flooding. Is when the actual diversion channels are closed and the water starts to back up. And in Site C's case, we're talking about flooding 83 kilometers of the Peace River Valley and 45 kilometers of the river's river's tributaries. It's not a salmon-bearing river. It is a bull trout. Bering River okay. and bull trout are a species vulnerable to extinction. And there's there's a crazy plan to take them in trucks past the dam for the 100-year lifespan of the project. I can, I can come oh. back to that. But so basically, if you add all the flooding together, the tributaries and the river valley, it's going to flood an area approximately the equivalent of driving from Vancouver to Whistler or from Toronto to Niagara Falls. It's a huge, huge area. And we're talking about putting a absolutely spectacular valley with old-growth boreal forest and farmland um, under up to 50 meters of water.
0: Which is really incredible when you put it in those terms. Um, Now, for the the sake of the government, the argument then is we need the energy and we need the jobs – These are all all positive things, right? Clean energy, right? Non-fossil fuels. So how does the government make the case between the environmental damage that that will be done from a dam and the argument that they're making on these are actually uh, creating green jobs and green energy? Where's the balance for them?
1: So here's the crazy thing. B.C. does not need the energy from this dam. Mm. Energy demand in B.C. has been stagnant since 2005, we have so much energy in our province right now that we are paying independent power producers millions of dollars a year not to produce energy. Um, BC Hydro has just proposed changing the rules for, for solar installations, people who want to put solar on their rooftops, so that they would no longer buy back the excess power, which can be bought at, at far less the cost of SiteSeas power. And we have no, no export contracts for the power. So, the power if and when it comes online will cost more to produce than we can possibly earn selling it on the spot market. So that that's one crazy thing about this. The other thing is that it's not green energy because the environmental damage is so enormous. So the Peace River Valley is part of um, what's known as the Peace River Break, which is an important part of the longest remaining wildlife corridor on the continent, the Yellowstone to Yukon Wildlife Corridor. And uh, there are scientific studies that show that Site C, combined with the impact of other industrial development in the area, risk severing this very important wildlife corridor. It sites see the the Peace River Valley is a mixing zone for species from four different biomes. It's a place that scientists where scientists are, are studying how species adapt to global warming because it, it's a home to many outlier species. For example, it has the world's um, northernmost cactus populations right mm-hmm. there in the valley. It's incredibly rich in biodiversity, and scientists are even discovering species there that they never thought they would see so far north because it's a very rare, low-elevation northern valley. So in terms of the clean energy, yes, it would produce produce clean energy, and I put that in quotations because there are also more and more studies coming out showing that um, greenhouse gas emissions from... Uh, big reservoirs are much larger than expected
0: Hmm. and
1: there are far less impactful cheaper and more environmentally friendly ways to produce clean energy if indeed we should need it
0: right which as you say bc currently doesn't (laughs) doesn't actually need that that energy so why then does the government want to do this
1: that's a question I really dug into in the book, and I spent a lot of time researching because um, if you look at the facts and you look at the evidence and you look at the science, uh, the site dam just doesn't make sense. If you look at the politics, it starts to make sense, and that's something that I took a, a close look at in the book. So basically you have this project that's been sitting on the books that was rejected in the 1980s by an independent utilities commission that's meant to determine whether energy projects are in the public interest. It was rejected by BC Hydro's own board of directors in the 1990s, and they said at that time that the project should never proceed because it was far too damaging and that alternatives existed. And then you have a government who takes a keen interest in clean energy and, and global warming come along, and they basically held up this project as a centerpiece of their vision to tackle global warming, thinking that the project would be export that the power from the project would be exported to other jurisdictions and help them wean themselves off, off fossil fuel dependent energy. Well, there that didn't happen because there are no jurisdictions that want to buy the Sightsea Dams power. <laughs> so then Again, fast forward to uh, another provincial liberal government, very eager to show job creation as a provincial election campaign approaches. And lo and behold, you have the Site C dam project held up as um, a job creation project. Now, critics look at that and say, well, if we're going to spend almost $11 billion for the public purse, shouldn't we be creating far more jobs than the 25 permanent jobs that this project would would produce upon completion.
0: Yeah, that does seem low. Uh, 25 for you know 10 billion dollars. Uh, you know, you could probably just give that money away <laughs> to people and yeah. have it be be more effectively spent. So politically, yes, it does look good. Does 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 that help highlight the north south divide that you mentioned too? That people in the south say, oh, clean energy jobs. And they don't have to actually confront the environmental reality of it. Is that also why it's politically expedient to do so?
1: Absolutely. And that's also something that I look at in the book is that if you, again, if you step back and look at the big picture of BC's northeast, a lot of people who live there feel that it's become an industrial sacrifice zone. There, hmm. There's very little of it that's that's left intact. There's been extensive fracking for Uh, natural gas, logging, coal mining, you name it, it's happening up there. In fact, one study showed that the pace of industrial development in the peace was greater than the pace of development in Alberta's oil sands. And so you have that, and then you take this beautiful remaining stretch of valley, and that's what, what people hold on to up there, and there's really a feeling that we are sacrificing the north for the south, and then if you again look at the, the politics of it, we had a, an election last summer and a minority NDP government, and they had the power to decide whether or not this project would go ahead. And they made that decision in the fall, and um, they decided to continue with it. Again, when you look at where they're strong politically, it's in the Lower Mainland. That's their base. That's where they picked up some new seats enough to push them over the edge and, and uh, come into power in a, in a deal with the B.C. Greens. And um, people in the lower mainland, mainland are very far removed from what's going on in the north.
0: And that, that would create that divide and, and further it, as you mentioned. Uh, the other thing that you, you mentioned there, the oil sands, and certainly the relationship between British Columbia and Alberta is not very good right now, but is there anything that goes along with the the British Columbia which I, my sense has been for a long time that BC has been one of the biggest critics of the oil sands and the idea of building a dam also helps them in that regard in their criticism of the oil sands and in that relationship which has been there's been some tension between Alberta and British Columbia is part of it in in their Ability to market themselves nationally as a counter to what happens in Alberta.
1: That's a very intriguing question, and my mind immediately springs to the latest development in this whole um, pipeline, uh, oil sands, uh, BC coast debacle, which is that just um, in the over the last few days. You saw the federal government elect not to oppose an injunction application by some First Nations to try to stop Site C. Now, of course, they said that they took that position uh, just to support First Nations rights and title. But many are seeing that as a bit of a slap on the wrist for BC, just saying that, reminding BC that the federal government does have some power and some sway in this, especially since uh, some federal permits are still needed for Site C. So I would not be at all surprised if you saw Site C increasingly join the Kinder Morgan pipeline skirmish between BC and Alberta.
0: Right. And just another sign of how the people there are sort of used as pawns in a larger game.
1: You, you mean the people in the
0: peace? The people in the peace. Yeah.
1: Yes. So one one of the families, so the the book, I tried to make it as much about people as about policy. And one of the farming families that I, I follow throughout the book is a family that's really been at the forefront of the fight to try to stop. Sightsee, and that's uh, the Boone family, Ken and Arlene Boone. And uh, they live in a farmhouse that was built by Arlene's grandfather on land that she grew up on and that five generations of her family have either lived on or were visited. And their land was expropriated by the former BC government for Site C about a year and a half ago. And they are, they're declining to move. They are still in the farmhouse, even though it is now owned by the provincial government. And, and they are, are just not, not moving off of their land. And Arlene told me in one interview that she found it very unethical and disturbing that, that power from Site C could go to quote, electrified the oil sands, that they would lose yeah. some of the richest farmland in all of Canada, land that's very dear to her family. They would lose their entire community because an entire community along in the valley will be destroyed. And uh, that the fact that now this had been pulled out of the hat as a possible uh, market for Saitse's power very much disturbed her.
0: Which I think is a very reasonable response, given the context of this. And is that representative of how most of the people in the piece feel about this project?
1: The piece is, it's a very varied region. So you have the, the settlers in the valley, largely farming and ranching families, as well as uh, people who live in a town called Hudson's Hope, which is perched on the cliffs of the Peace River, overlooking a magnificent part of the river. Those would be the, the private land holdings that are, are most impacted. Hudson's Hope would lose 68 properties to sightsee. There, there really wouldn't be much, very much left of the town at all. Um, which is ironic because it really uh, sprang to life during the building of the W.A.C. Bennett Dam. So when you talk about like the valley and the community, I just want to make it clear that it's not homogenous. You've got the farming and ranching families. You've got the town of Hudson's Hope where a majority of the employment comes from B.C. Hydro and uh, people work on the W.A.C. Bennett Dam and the Peace Canyon Dam, the second dam on the Peace River. And then you have... Uh, overlaid all of this, you've got um, the First Nations and the First Nations community. It's their traditional territory. For example, the the land around the Boone's Farm, known locally as Bear Flat, is has been a special meeting place for First Nations for millennia. And they still have a sweat lodge there. They still continue to hold elder and youth gatherings there. They still have grave sites there, grave sites that would be lost to Site C, So the book follows the journey of farmers and uh, First Nations members and First Nations chiefs as they fight against Site C.
0: But then how does that relate to the community? So you mentioned the people who are employed in the hydro industry. It seems like there could be a divide there. And one of these things that I've often found in researching when there's opposition to government programs is that when a community even if it's not homogenous if if you know a vast majority of a community of the people who live in a place comes together and strongly oppose it or strongly support it for that matter that does have a lot of sway so is the opposition solely from the first nations community or are there people who are, in addition to the, the, the farmers, but are any of those hydro workers part of an opposition coalition that brings this region or this community together and not quite a singular voice, but at least maybe a unified voice in, in any way?
1: Well, certainly any hydro employees would not be able to state their their opinion publicly if if they were against Site C. It's a very one thing I learned is that it's it's not a black and white issue. It's it's a black and white issue for many people who would be directly affected and for others it's more of an acceptance and there are many shades of gray. And so again, Just because of the nature of the project, because of the nature of secrecy surrounding it, where British Columbians actually know very little about what's actually going on there, where media are not allowed onto the worksite, it's very hard to get that big picture. There are local people employed on the construction site. I've also heard that uh, BC Hydro is flying in plane loads of people from elsewhere because there simply aren't anywhere near enough local workers.
0: So then the, uh, the, the job creation aspect of it, the community doesn't even benefit from that.
1: There, there are some benefits for sure. Again, it's a question of you know benefits, it's short term benefits. Uh, We're talking about jobs that are not going to exist in a few years when the Mm -hmm. dam construction has finished. And the question of whether if we're going to spend $11 billion, shouldn't we be spending it on creating jobs that are going to last more than a few years? And one of the things that I've heard from First Nations communities all over the province is that they would like to engage in clean energy projects. They would like to be at the forefront of developing geothermal in the province. They would like to embark on wind projects. They would like to be able to create solar farms. But BC doesn't need that energy. So BC Hydro, except in a few very rare cases, is not buying that energy. And so what we have is we have this massive construction project and job creation project in one place. And it's not distributing the benefits evenly around the province as other clean energy projects would.
0: So the First Nation community, as you mentioned, that they want to be on the forefront. They want to really help with the creation of not only clean energy, but clean jobs as well. Were they consulted about this dam prior to the announcement?
1: BC Hydro has spent years engaging First Nations communities about Site C, and this was an issue that came up in the court cases that have already taken place against Site C, is what exactly is the definition of consultation? Mm. Is consultation recording emails and meetings and interactions with First Nations communities, or is consultation actually taking the community's advice and wishes and incorporating it into the project? And I spoke with a few First Nations chiefs who said their definition of consultation and our definition of consultation are completely different. So again, it all goes back to these gray areas and different interpretations on the books, yes, BC Hydro consulted, did it mean that any advice from dissenting First Nations was taken into account and incorporated into the project? Those First Nations say no.
0: What was the advice that was given by the First Nations?
1: Well, for example, one of the big controversies and a local controversy in this whole thing has been the route for the highway relocation. So one side of the... the, Peace River Valley that would be impacted by Site C is largely untouched um, old-growth boreal forest that is had actually been set aside to become part of a provincial protected area that has many different protective designations. And the other side of the valley is largely farming and ranching communities, agricultural land. And so at the area around Ken and Arlene Boone's farmhouse, known as Bear Flat, um, again, the, an area that's very special for First Nations, that is one area where the new at least half a billion dollar provincial highway would have to go to take it out of the Site C flood zone and, and put it up a bit higher. And First Nations have asked time and time again, as has the Peace Valley Landowner Association representing 70 landowners that would be impacted by Site C. They've asked time and time again for BC Hydro to move the highway further back away from their cultural area. And one chapter in the book looks at this and other requests from First Nations and how they were treated. And basically that fight continues. It's been going on for years Um, and uh, the highway has not been built there yet. It's a long and complicated story about why not, but the First Nations have managed to hold off the, um, the building of the highway there. So that would be one instance where they look and they say, we've asked you to move the highway to your second shortlisted option, and BC Hydro has said, no, we're not going to do that because there are better conditions here, There are more passing opportunities for drivers if we put the the new highway here. And again, that little fight in the middle of the big fight continues to this day. It's not
0: resolved. So essentially, BC Hydro is going forth with their plan despite what they're hearing. So it's not a question really of whether or not the dam will be there it seems like it's sort of this how it gets implemented and where it gets implemented and essentially not taking into account the local perspective which is strange not just from for a variety of reasons why it's strange but because the local people know the area best presumably and would understand how to best utilize the space no
1: yes and so just to to follow up on your point about the dam um, being built so there are several things that could still stop um, the dam at this point in time so it's not even three years into preliminary construction for a nine-year construction project they are seriously behind and seriously over budget the project's cost climbed by another $2 billion just in recent months. And one of the things that could stop it are the First Nations court cases. There are two court cases by three Treaty Eight First First Nations that are being held this July. Either one of those court cases could result in an injunction, a temporary injunction, a permanent injunction until Um, the bigger court cases um, are heard. So those things could stop it. The other thing that could stop it is the fast rising cost because the cost just continues to climb. And um, if you look at what's happened in Manitoba and Newfoundland and Labrador where escalating costs on those two dams, are adding substantially to um, hydro bills in those provinces. At a certain point in time, the payoff for continuing versus the payoff for stopping uh, will become apparent. And Mm. at that point in time, uh, it could be canceled as well. And the third thing that could um, prevent it from continuing is ongoing major geotechnical issues. They still have not found bedrock, and Mm. that yes they have been digging and digging and they still have not found bedrock to anchor the dam so that that's an issue that was uh, flagged in the fall when there was a brief independent review of of the project's economics so i did just want to address that and, and point out that even though construction is continuing there are still things that could stop this project if you look at what's going on in newfoundland and labrador right now there's a $37 $37 million inquiry to find out why the Muskrat Falls Dam continued and uh, why it um, basically has is adding a, an average of $1,800 a month to the hydro bill of, of every household in that province.
0: Yeah, these things aren't obviously foolproof. I want to get back, though, to something you mentioned uh, earlier where you mentioned you know, in talking about the environmental impact that can happen from a dam you mentioned the trout and how the government proposes to for the lifespan of the dam to truck the trout around the dam
1: yes this is true so as large dams came back into style as concern about global warming heated up, and they were presented as a as clean energy, uh, not, again, green energy, but clean energy, and it's important to make that distinction. Basically, conditions were put on dams getting environmental assessment certificates from either pro- from provincial and the federal government. And in Site C's case, in the case of the Site C dam, when you look at the impact on things like wetlands, uh, the impact on birds because the valley is a, a very important uh, migratory corridor uh, for birds. It's part of the boreal bird nursery. What, what has happened is that the um, BC Hydro has been given their environmental assessment certificates, but with conditions. And so some of the conditions are that mitigation, and again, I put that in quotation marks, mitigation takes place. In the case of bull trout, their spawning grounds are in the halfway river, which is upstream of where the dam structure would be. So in order to get its environmental certificate and assessment certificate for the Site C dam, BC Hydro had to demonstrate that it was doing something to protect these vulnerable populations of bull trout and so now we have this crazy scheme where the trout are actually going to be trucked past the dam for its lifespan at considerable cost to BC rate payers. And the crazy thing is that while this kind of scheme, where which involves a, a fish ladder, has uh, worked well for salmon, where it has been tested for bull trout in North America, bull trout have shown that they don't like to ascend human-made structures, and it hasn't worked at all. But yet, we are continuing with this crazy plan, made even more crazy by the fact that up to 40% of the fish that are trucked past the dam will die in the dam's turbines when they're swimming back downstream.
0: To me, that's one of these things where, when we talk about jobs and and things being clean, Uh that it has to have not only an environmental impact, but also an economic impact for people living along the river if the trout start to go away and start to decline like there's there's a larger impact you know it it, maybe it's this thing where we have to talk about unintended consequences from things and maybe that's one of them or who knows maybe it's even an intended consequence but it's one of these things where when we talk about economic activity environmental activity that an act that can be presented as a positive on both fronts has a negative impact on the other side that really doesn't get that much attention when it's being presented to the voting public by politicians. And it strikes me that this is the, a really good example of how the powerful can you know, steamroll those who aren't in power, who don't have a voice, and therefore can't counter the spin that's being put on a project like this.
1: Yes, and I I would again take a step further back and then I would hazard a guess that the vast majority of British Columbians know nothing about this scheme that they'll be paying for. And again, like Site C is very much out of sight and out of mind for most British Columbians, aside from a a flurry of of news uh, when the new government uh, here was wondering whether or not to cancel the project, there's been very little news coverage of it. Um, Most reporters who have written about it have not been up to the region, and we've seen the traditional news media so gutted by cutbacks that there has been very little coverage of of the Site C dam. The uh, non-traditional new media has done a good job of covering it, but the media is in a huge transition right now in Canada, and Again, it's out of sight and out of mind and has not gotten the scrutiny that it deserves. And the result of that is that most people don't know about the impact, either the human impact or the environmental impact.
0: You could even maybe take a a guess that even if the traditional media wasn't cut back or, or had done more, I mean, indigenous voices have been silenced for so long in this country that if you know, the First Nations that are in the region are the, the primary ones who are objecting and making these claims as to, to what the impact going to be, that who knows if they would get that coverage anyway, because for so long, their concerns have been uh, at best minimized and in most cases completely ignored, uh, not only by the people doing these projects, but by a lot of media outlets as well.
1: Right. And I I see that the Assembly of First Nations has issued a press release um, just today calling on the B.C. government to suspend work on Site C until uh, treaty court cases can be heard. And we will see how much coverage that gets.
0: Yeah, that'll be that'll be really interesting to see uh, how, how much that gets today on what at least in the east as we record, hasn't been a particularly busy news day so far. So uh, we'll see what happens for the rest of the day. Uh, the other thing that, that's interesting to me too, you, you, we talked about people who would be forced from their homes uh, and forced from land that is meaningful to them for, for a variety of reasons. And there's echoes to me of, of situations that I've read about in the United States. Uh, Detroit comes to mind where the governments have wanted people to move. Now, a different reason here in, in the Peace uh, Valley, then in or along the Peace River than in places like Detroit, but one of the arguments that people say is, that, oh, this is my home, this is where I live, I, I am not moving, and then governments say, well, it's for a greater good, and we live in this collective world, and this is going to be for the better for everyone, so therefore you have to do this. Now that often happens to people who don't have any power, who tend to have less economic power and tend to be minorities. Uh, So there's a whole element of that there. But is there any aspect of that coming from either the, the BC Hydro or the BC government in suggesting that the damage that will be done to the town, the need for people to move is in the project that is for a greater good, and then therefore they have to think about a larger collective. Has that argument been used at all in this case?
1: That argument has absolutely been used. In fact, both the provincial and the federal governments use that argument when granting the environmental assessment certificate. Hmm. They acknowledge that the environmental damage would be great, but said that it was justifiable for the greater good. Uh, Take an organization like Amnesty International and uh, Amnesty International's Secretary General for Canada, Alex Neve, wrote the foreword uh, for this book. Amnesty took a look at this situation and said that the standards for the international standards for forced evictions are not met in the case of Site C. And they have made uh, Site C a priority project in Canada for that reason and for the reason that uh, Site C... Um, appears to violate treaty rights.
0: The treaty, of course, is a federal issue, right, whereas the the B.C. government is trying to do this. So there's all this entanglement with it, and there's really no easy answer then. Uh, and it also, though, compromises the idea of the collective good.
1: In 2013-2014, a joint review panel was struck uh, to look at Site C. In, despite a condensed time frame and condensed budget, they put together a very cons- comprehensive report of the project's impacts and recommended that it go to independent review. And if you look at this project, at every step of the way, the due process has not been followed. And you saw that with the previous BC Liberal government when they changed the law to remove Site C from independent scrutiny. You saw that again when the project was basically begun with a provincial election on the horizon as a job creation program even though there was no need for the energy in the time frame presented as the joint review panel concluded and you saw that once again with the new ndp government where pushing ahead the project when the energy is not needed because they don't want to be seen as the party of no and turning down a big resource project and with a big push from construction trade unions who are generous donors to the party. So at every step of the way with this project, due process has not been followed.
0: And to me, it's a sign, too, because we're in the midst of a, of an election campaign here in Ontario, and it shows the importance of provincial politics and municipal politics, for that matter, despite the fact that I know voting rates are just down across the board in this country, but certainly federal politics seems to get a lot more attention than provincial politics, and then municipal politics gets very little coverage. And it almost should be the reverse, because in my mind, the municipal government, provincial government, federal government, in that order have the most effect on your life on a day-to-day basis, and yet we we pay so much more attention to the federal issues, when here we have a, a provincial issue that certainly i live in ontario this is not something that really i even heard of before i saw the book and uh, obviously it's a very important issue to a lot of people it's a 10 billion dollar project like it just doesn't it just doesn't drive a narrative in the same way that a federal project would
1: yes although you could say that this is a federal project it is a provincial project but with with federal blessing up until now anyway right. and Um, The other thing that I was going to say is that the Union of BC Municipalities, which represents a majority of people in this province, several years ago before construction on Site C began, or just after it began, passed a resolution urging the provincial government not to proceed with the project at this time. So basically you, you have the First Nations communities from the Union of BC Indian Chiefs, the Assembly of First Nations, West Moberly First Nations, Prophet River First Nation, all asking for the project not to proceed, uh, at least until the question of whether or not it violates treaty rights can be tested in the courts. The courts still, there has been no determination by the courts about whether or not this project violates treaty rights. You have the Union of BC Municipalities saying that it shouldn't proceed. You have the Joint Review Panel recommending that it go to a robust independent review and seeing that the energy was not needed in the time frame. And yet, it has proceeded, and it has proceeded for political reasons, not for economic reasons.
0: Right, and that's why there's so many elements to this story, right? There's obviously the political, but there's also the the idea of the powerful versus those who don't have power. It's settler-colonial. There's economic factors here. There's the idea of even what constitutes green or clean energy, and and in the larger case of reducing emissions and climate change. There's so many elements to the story that uh, are are illuminated so well in this book, and uh, I've been so happy to have the chance to look through the book, and I'm excited to read it in more detail. And just finally, you've mentioned a couple of times that... This project is still in flux in a way, and you know, you've spent so much time reading about it, looking into it. Do you have a sense of where it's going?
1: Well, what happened again is after the new government came into power last year, there was a very quick review of Sightsee, and all kinds of things came out that people did not know about because there's been a, kind of a lockdown on information. It's been very hard to get information about Geotechnical issues about cost overruns. And so that review revealed that the project could cost as much as 12.5 billion or even more than that. It revealed problems with contractors, huge geotechnical issues that were not resolved. It also found that even before the, the 2 billion uh, increase in, in cost that the same amount of energy could be produced at the same or lower cost by a combination of uh, wind and geothermal. So it is very much in flux. The people who live in the valley are still hoping beyond hope that it could be stopped and that their community could be saved. And I will say as somebody who lives in the south of BC, traveling to the north and learning about the peace and learning about the Sightsea Dam and learning about the community, I personally came to regard this area as a very, very special place for all kinds of reasons. And it is kind of crazy to think that in this day and age we would destroy a valley of great significance, block. A designated heritage river, cut bull trout off from their spawning grounds, destroy a huge tract of some of Canada's best agricultural land, and according to the First Nations who are fighting Site C in court, violate a treaty to which we are all part. And it's just really quite unfathomable to think that we would fast track something like this before weighing in all of the consequences, and especially given that alternative clean energy sources exist if BC should ever need them.
0: Yeah, and all done for political expediency and political gains. It doesn't appear to be a great chapter in British Columbia history.
1: Um, you know, I my personal prediction is that if the project continues, we're going to end up with the same thing in BC that's happened in Newfoundland and Labrador, right. where when people actually realize how much their hydro bills will go up as a result of the site C dam, and none of it is on the books yet, that there will be an inquiry here as well, looking into how this project could possibly have proceeded when the factual evidence points to... Um, all the factual evidence points to the travesty of continuing.
0: Right. And well, when that inquiry happens, they'll have your book. (laughs) So so they'll be at least that. They'll have a source to go to uh, right away. And again, the book is Breaching the Peace, the Sightsee Dam, and a Valley Stand Against Big Hydro. Sarah Cox, I could talk about this all day, but you, you've got more important things to do than talk to me, unfortunately. <laughs> uh, so I do thank you so much for taking the time uh, all the way from Victoria this morning.
1: Thank you very much for having me. I've enjoyed speaking with you.
0: If you have any questions or comments for the podcast, it's historieslam at gmail.com. You can find me on Twitter at Dr. Shani Fever. If you see Enrico Palazzo, please say hi for me.